Amen. So we're glad to be here today uh, for our second time meeting together. And um, as we do, I'd like to, uh, uh, I'd like to today start, or actually we started it last week, we just didn't title it, but I'd like to start uh, a series today of messages uh, entitled, In the Beginning. And the reason why uh, I'd like to do that and entitle this series that way is because this is a beginning. This is a beginning for us. This is a beginning, as I said before, of something new, something awesome, something historic that has never happened in our city. And as I said last week, uh, we have other multi-ethnic churches in our city, but there has never been uh, a... Um, partnership, if you will, or not just a partnership, but a merging of two different congregations to become another campus of the one. And then that merger uh, being multi-ethnic, multi-generational, uh, and all those good things. And so we thank God for what he's doing. But this is a beginning for us. And normally, at the beginning of any significant collaboration, uh, a collaborative endeavor, uh, there are some constants that usually happen at the very beginning of anything that's going to be good. Uh, there are things that are done in the very beginning to enhance the uh, likelihood of future success. So then that's what I'd like to do for the next few weeks is uh, I'd like to do some of that here in our group. Uh, things happen in the beginning like vision casting, laying a foundation, uh, expressing values, and setting goals. Anytime, even in scripture, anytime you see that there's a beginning of something big, something great, you see these things happen. You can take, for instance, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and so on. When God creates the heavens and the earth, he does the very same thing. That's the reason why the Bible, the very first verse in the Bible, the very first words you read are in the beginning, because it was a beginning. It was a beginning. And by the way, uh, there's a question, the question that's out there that's asked, uh, is God really real? Is God who he says he is? is God, does God really have authority? Well, the very first line in your Bible settles that question because that very first line says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To me, that settles all of that. He has the ultimate authority. But what we're going through now is the beginning of something. And in the beginning, God does the same thing. He sets up goals. He sets values. He puts all these things in place for what he would hope mankind would be. You remember in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, it says, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This is what we know as the Imago Dei. It talks about how we were created in the very image of God. It says that he laid on the inside of us the same values that he had uh, as he created us. He wanted us to have those same values. He's setting the foundation for the beginning of mankind. Then it says uh, he blessed them. And he then gets into goal setting because this is what he says next. Be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. These were the goals and the vision that God set in place for mankind. It was the beginning, so then these things were set in place. You can move on then to the birth of the church. Another beginning. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost, and he preached such a stirring message that many came to salvation, many came to be a part of the new church that had begun as a result of the, the day of Pentecost and Peter's preaching. But he does the very same thing that God does in the beginning and the very same thing that I hope to do that we should have a desire to do as we enter into our beginning. At the very beginning of the birth of the church, there are values that are set in place because it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellow and fellowship. These were their values. They, their values were based in the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine held their values. to the. They broke bread together. They did all these things. And then there was vision at the very end of that passage because it said God, God had favor with all people and the, and the Lord uh, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So then the vision and the goal was to save as many people as would come, as God would lead. God, it says, added to the church daily. So then we see that uh, as we uh, enter into our beginning, we have a need to do some of these very same things. Same things. And I'd like to, for the next few weeks of our beginning, go through each of the six core values that we adopted at the very beginning of this journey. We adopted six core values, and I'd like to kind of discuss each of them as we go forward for the next few weeks so that we can kind of all be on the same page and we're all doing the same thing and we're all pulling together like they, like they did in Acts chapter 2. And we would pray that as a result of that, that we would see some of the same results that they saw in Acts chapter 2. So then let me just go through these real quick. First one is we believe that worship is a lifestyle. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. We believe in loving God by loving his people. We believe that God's word is essential. We are committed to going. We give generously and we do everything with excellence for God's glory. Those are the six values that we have been kind of operating under since day one. Today, though, I'd like to focus our attention on number one, the very first one. Uh, as I share with you some thoughts about worship. We'll talk about worship today. Because I think that worship and an understanding and an agreement uh, together on what worship is will benefit us in the long run. I know that all of us have an idea of what worship is, and many of us have the right idea of what worship is, but I want us to all be together as we move forward so that we can understand uh, what worship is all about. Uh, we see worship as a lifestyle as early as Genesis chapter 4. Uh, you remember in Genesis chapter 4, it's the story of Cain and Abel and how Abel, for the very first time, there's a worship experience as Abel presents an offering to God. 
uh, and God receives it and is pleased by his offering, but then Cain presents one and God is not so happy. And as a result of that, Cain is not happy and Cain eventually kills his brother because God received his brother's offering and didn't receive his. It was worship. It was a wor- the first time we see worship happen in scripture. But it's not until Genesis chapter 22 that we actually see the word worship appear. It's, it, it happens all through and as a lifestyle before Genesis 22, but the word appears for the very first time in Genesis 22. And it's in Genesis 22 that we'll spend the bulk of our time today. Uh, most of you know, know the story of what happens in Genesis 22, and if you do, you'll, you'll be reminded that Abraham is, of course, a central character of Genesis 22. And likewise, as he is the central character in Genesis 22, he'll be the central character of our discussion today. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Abraham and, and, and discover some things about Abraham. Uh, his life will serve then as the backdrop for us uh, in our theme today. Our theme today for this part of our series will be the life of a worshiper. And Abraham's life will serve as the backdrop for that. As we, as we look at and examine the life of Abraham, uh, I, I, I think you will, or if you don't now, hopefully by the end of our time, you'll agree with me that Abraham was a worshiper. Abraham was, his life was built around worshiping. He was a worshiper. And before we examine the events of chapter 22, I'd like to share a little bit of background about Abraham and his life and how we see that Abraham is a worshiper early on. In the first time we see his name mentioned in Scripture, he is worshiping God. Uh, We can trace Abraham's lifestyle of worship all the way back to his call in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, you remember that God calls Abraham And he says this, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to that land, the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we see Abraham's response to this unusual call that is challenging him to leave everything that he's comfortable with and to go somewhere where God is asking him to go and he doesn't even tell him where that's going to be. But his response to this unusual request or call on his life says to me and confirms to me that Abraham, from the, uh, he was then Abram, was a worshiper from the very beginning, because it says his response was this, chapter in verse 4, Abraham went. Didn't ask any questions, he just went. As he honored God, he didn't know where he was going. He knew he was going to be going somewhere that was uh, uncomfortable, that he might be challenged, that he might be threatened, that he might be attacked, 
that all these things might happen, but he was going to have to leave the comfortable confines of his father's house and the comfortable confines of relatives and friends that he had come, the, the racial relationships that he had built, and go somewhere that was totally strange to him. But he responds by going. Uh, and as the, Lord, as the Lord had told him, he went. And, and here's an interesting thing. Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, is already 75 years old. Uh, he's already, his life has already been established. He, for most of us, that's too old to be changing. For me, I'm not no, nowhere near that age, and I don't like change now. <laughs> I'm setting my ways. <laughs> I don't really like changing, but I've learned that if I want to grow, so here's the thing. So let's loosen up a little bit. Can we loosen up a little bit? Y'all making me nervous. <laughs> I've learned that the only way to grow in life is to stretch yourself and not be so set in your ways and be willing to expand one's horizons, especially when it is God that is directing us to expand. And so, and, and it is, there is no greater expression of worship than when God calls your name to not question, to not doubt, to not waver, to not hesitate, to not do any of that, but to simply respond by just saying, like Abraham or Abram here, and like Isaiah, when Isaiah got his call, here I am, I'll go, send me. You'll never experience greater growth in your life than when you just are open to what God is calling. And so, and so we see early on in the, in the call of Abram that he is a worshiper. And then from there, as he has a high point, very first moment in his life that we read about, because he's 75, so he's had some other moments, but the very first significant moment that makes it into Scripture that we read about, about Abram, we see that he, he, he agrees with God, he does what God calls him to do, he's a worshiper, but then his life starts to be up and down. He has some high points, and he has some low points. Uh, as he follows God's instruction. Uh, as, we, as we look at his life and as we make our way to chapter 22, we're going to see that Abraham, who's now Abram, is not perfect. He's going to make some mistakes along the way. He's going to have some ups and downs along the way, which says that imperfection does not disqualify you from being a worshiper. In, in your imperfect, God wants your imperfections and all of that. He is desiring to have all of you. So uh, I would encourage all of us not to be bogged down in our imperfections and understand that that does not prevent us from worshiping God. So later then in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abram he heads to Canaan. God sends him. Canaan, he heads to Canaan without asking any questions, and he arrives in a part of Canaan called Shechem. 
And it's here that the Lord appears to him for the very first time. In the first part of chapter 12, the Lord just speaks to him. But then when he arrives in Canaan in Shechem, the Lord for the very first time appears to him. And when the Lord appears to Abram, he expresses as he'll do all throughout his time. He expresses his worship to God when God appears to him by building an altar to worship God. He expresses it there. Uh, from there, he has a bit of a low point, a low light, as a famine comes to the land of Canaan. Abram, as a result of the famine, leaves Canaan and travels to Egypt. He arrives, and when he arrives, he immediately tells Pharaoh a half-truth. It's one of his low, low moments, and he'll have a few of them along the way. Uh, what he says to Pharaoh and what he encourages his wife, Sarai, to say to Pharaoh is half true because he's afraid because his wife is so pretty. I can feel him here. <laughs> I can relate to Abram right here. And I can't say that I wouldn't be as scared as he was because uh, entering to Egypt wondering if they were going to kill me because my wife is so pretty. <laughs> so I can relate to the reason why he might have, but, but he still tells the half-truth. He, he, he borders on telling a lie. And really, any half-truth is really so, you know, we have what we call white lies and little lies and some that are not. He lied. But part of what he said was true because he says to Sarai, he says, when we, go, when we get there, they're going to recognize how beautiful you are and they're going to want you. And because they're going to want you, they're going to kill me. So would you please tell them that you're my sister? Now, it was half true because she was his half sister, but he left out the fact that she was his wife. So he has a low moment on his journey. He says, Tell them, tell Pharaoh that you're my half-sister. And then he, he says it himself. Uh, they had the same father, but not the same mother. Then from chapter 12, when he has this low moment, we travel to chapter 14. Uh, and we're, we're working our way to chapter 22. Abram, in chapter 14, who is very wealthy, encounters a man by the name of Melchizedek who in Scripture is described as the king of Salem, a priest of God Most High. He's the first person that Abram meets that blesses him, that blesses his journey, that blesses uh, what he is doing, that says a blessing over him. Uh, and Abram expresses worship by giving, all along the way we see him express his worship. And so in this instance, as he meets Melchizedek, who, by the way, is a strange character in Scripture. He just appears out of nowhere. Doesn't have, we don't get a background on him, don't know who his family is, anything. Some have surmised uh, that there, there's a debate as to who Melchizedek really is. Some have even said that he is a pre-incarnate theophany of Jesus Christ. We don't know. We just know that he comes out of nowhere and he blesses Abram, and Abram, as an expression of worship, gives him Wealthy Abram gives him a tenth of all that he had as an expression of worship. This is the first reference in Scripture to the tithe. 
Some have varying opinions on the tithe, but we do see it right here in Scripture. The first time we see evidence of it, Abram, in expressing his worship, gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Then we move on. That's a high point. He, he, he does the right thing. He, he expresses his worship. Then we move on to chapter 15, round verse 6. There's another highlight. Abram, as God has shared with him what he would do for him in giving him a son of promise, Abram uh, says, believe the Lord, and he counted it, the Lord did, as righteousness. As God promised him a son, Abram believed what God said. And God counted it as righteousness. Then we move on to 16, and there's another low light. Chapter 16, Abram gets impatient and frustrated. And Sarai, his wife, joins in the frustration. And they come up with the scheme that Abram wants a son, and God's not moving fast enough. Anybody here ever been in the midst of a situation where God wasn't moving fast enough? And you look back now and realize you did something that you shouldn't have done because you got impatient with God. It's all right to talk back to me. I, you know, let's, let's just get that on out of the way again. It's, some, it's okay. It's some, I know. So we talk about how, how we're going to balance this. What are we going to do? Because we got, we got a group that likes to be quiet, Brother Chris, and we got a group that likes to make noise. Let me just, let me just knock this down again. We're going to be okay. If you want to make noise, you're good here. If you want to be quiet, you're good here. If you want to wave your hand, you're free to do that. If you want to sit and just listen to all this crazy, stupid, dumb stuff I'm saying, <laughs> I hope it's not that. You're okay to do that as well, right? So I want you to be comfortable. But, but So has anybody, let me ask this question again, for those of you who like to make noise, has anybody here ever gotten impatient with God and decided that we, you were going to take matters into your own hands. And then later, you realized that you made a critical mistake that impacted the rest of your life and something that you could not go back and fix, but that you had to suffer through the consequences of your actions. In chapter 16, Abram and Sarai do that. They get impatient with God, and Sarai goes to him and says, well, you know we have Hagar in the house. Now, I'm going to dance around this a little bit. I know we got some young folk, so I'm going to be careful. But amen. <laughs> she says to him, why don't we solve our problem through Hagar? Did I put that good? Was that, was that clean enough? <laughs> we can solve our problem. So he has a low moment in 16 as he takes matters into his own, own hands and Ishmael is born. He doesn't have time to wait on Isaac. Ishmael is born. It's a low moment in his life. Then we move on to 17. We're getting to 22. Y'all bear with me. I'm just trying to help us see what happens as we make our way there. Uh, in 17, God again puts his hand of favor on Abram, and he changes his name in 17.5 from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. Another high point. Then 1717 is another low point because in 1717 he laughs at the thought of having a son at his old age of 100 years old. 100 years old, God says, you're going to have a son. Abraham la Abram, now Abraham laughs at God and at the thought of that. Then in 24, here's another high point. 
as we make our way to chapter 22, because in 24, and I need to be careful to hear, hear again, because in 1724, Abraham is circumcised at 99 years old. <laughs> I don't need to say anything else, do I? And that's a high point because, you know, that was an expression of worship. He, he, he trusted God. He loved God. And he had some weak moments along the way. But as an expression, an ultimate expression of worship, he, uh, he volunteers and allows himself to be circumcised at 99 years old. Then in chapter 18, he has another highlight as he pleads with God for the salvation, if you will, and the security of Gomorrah. You know, he goes through that whole list of, well, if there's five, if there's 50, if there that are righteous. And God says, there is nobody righteous. So God, but Abram, in his compassion towards others, and oftentimes that's what worship leads us to do, is be compassionate for others. In his compassion towards, towards others, he pleads with God to save the city. Unfortunately, there were not anyone, any, any righteous in the city, and God destroys it. Then we find another low light in chapter 20, as he again does what he did back before when he arrives in Egypt. He now uh, is before King Abimelech, and he tells the same half-truth or the same lie that he tells when he enters into Egypt. He says again, because Jane, I mean Sarah, Sarah, it's so pretty. <laughs> Tell them that you're my sister. Same thing. He does the same. He didn't learn his lesson the first time. He, he has these highs and lows. He, 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 he tells this lie, this half-truth that, that, that Sarah is his sister so that King Abimelech won't kill him. Another low point. But then in chapter 21, as we almost have arrived at 22, he has one of the highest points of his life because in chapter 21, Isaac is born. Now, let me pause here and say this also as we set kind of context and as we set for, for our time together. Let me say this. I get a little passionate sometimes, and I hope that's okay. And I'm going to say this as we go forward. That's the last time I'm going to apologize. So y'all just, just have to get, you, I'm going to get used to you, and I'm going to ask you to get used to me, all right? And I think we're going to be okay. I just need you, because if I can't do this if I'm not passionate. It's just not going to come out right. I'm sorry. So if you would just bear with me, we'll bear with each other. Is that all right? I get a little loud sometimes. That's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes I get a little expressive. And so I just pray that you'll understand what we're trying to do. That's just who I am. Is that all right? So in 21, if I can raise my voice a little bit, something wonderful happens in 21 because God had promised him that he was going to have a son of promise, not Ishmael, not a son uh, of Eleazar who was a servant. And not in it. he said, no, you're going to have a son that will come from your loins and that will be a result of you and Sarah's union is going to happen. And Abraham and Sarah laugh at God. But in chapter 21, the promise is realized. As Isaac is born and Abraham worships God at the end 
of 21. Then finally, look at my watch because I don't want to, I got to be careful. Last week I had the clock in my face. This week it's on the other side. So, <laughs> so I had to, we arrive in 22. And as we arrive in 22, we find in all of these highs and lows in the life of Abraham, we arrive in chapter 22, and when we get there, we find one of Abraham's finest moments, one of the fine, finest moments in all of his life, we find in chapter 22. Uh, if you read the superscription in your Bible, it may not appear as though it's a fine moment, because <laughs> if you read it, it doesn't sound good at all. It sounds disturbing. It sounds troubling. It sounds like trouble. It doesn't sound like it's a good thing because the superscription says the sacrifice of Isaac. Isn't that something? It, look, look at how this chapter 21, there's celebration. There's worship. There's excitement. There's joy because the son of promise has been born. Then the first thing recorded about Isaac Immediately after we read of his birth is Abraham asked to sacrifice him. Now, it does not mean that chronologically this is the first thing that happened because we know that by now Isaac is a young man. Transition between 21 and 22, Isaac is a young man now. He's no longer a child. He's not a baby. He's a grown man. He's a, he's a young man. Uh, but the first thing of significance, obviously, that happens in the life of Isaac that's significant enough to make it into the Bible after his birth is this incident, this occurrence of God asking his father, Abraham, to sacrifice him. Right after celebration in 21, we get this in 22. So then let's take a look at a few of these verses in 22 and see what we can learn from them about worship. First of all, let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, it says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. This word test, why would God test Abraham in such a difficult way? Why would he ask him to do something? What, what, what is this all about? What, what, what's going on here? I, I, God tests him. And he does it to see if Abraham would obey him. When, he, when the test seemed illogical, like it didn't make sense. So listen, here's the thing. All of us can pass an easy test. There's no problem, right? If, if the test makes sense, <laughs> if we can figure it out, we have no problem. God is not interested in testing us in easy ways because, watch this, the hope that he has for us is a big hope. The future that he has planned for each of us is a big future. And so because of that, he tests us oftentimes in big ways. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason to brag about passing an easy test. Spell it. What's two plus two? 
There's no reason if you got an A on that. No reason to brag about that. Don't be posting that on Facebook talking about look at my test score. I got an A. The test was 2 plus 2 and how to spell it. But if I ask you what is the square root of pi plus whatever, I'm not a, I don't know what to put there. Some of you that are smarter than I. But if, you, if, if I test you in that way and say give me the solution to that problem, then you may have a reason to post something on Facebook and say look at my score. I made an A on this difficult test. God, and but watch this, the result of passing such a test means that your future, because you are getting uh, information and education, your future is likely to be brighter because you've challenged yourself. So God sees things kind of in that way. So he tests Abraham in an illogical and a difficult way. He tests him. And so he says to him in, in verse 1, he tested Abram and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Um, it's difficult because it, it's the son. It's his, the son of promise that he asked him later. And then if you notice, it's also in verse 1, the first time that Abraham speaks in this entire passage. And he won't speak again until verse 5. And when we get to verse 5, you're going to see something interesting. Then verse 2, he tests him, number one, in verse 1, because he has big plans for him. He wants to see if he will be obedient and not question. He wants to see where his loyalty lies. He wants to see if he would be willing to do something that sounds out there. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. He says, only son. Really, Abraham already has at least two sons. Why does he describe him as his only son? Uh, he has Ishmael already, but this was the son in whom the promise rested. This is the son whom God has had promised Abraham that he would have. It's, he's the son of promise. And so God refers to him as his only son, although really he's not his only son. I think it's, it emphasizes how important Isaac was to Abraham. How significant of an ass this was. Sacrifice, I just made you a promise. Now I'm asking you to sacrifice that promise. The one that you love, the one that your hopes and dreams lie in, not only your hopes and dreams, but the one that I have promised you, you would have, and that would carry on. Sacrifice him. Uh, there's a lot in this passage that points us to Jesus. There's, if you look at it, there's, there's a lot of similarities in this passage that kind of put us in the mind of Jesus. So, so, so God says, your only son. That makes me think of Jesus because he was the only begotten of the Father, right? Full of grace and full of truth. And so God says to Abram, Abraham, sacrifice your only son makes me think of Jesus. Then the other thing that makes me think of Jesus is this sacrifice idea. 
says, take your only son and sacrifice him. Anybody think of how that relates to what Jesus does ultimately for all of us? He becomes a sacrifice for us. Then, as we read through the story, you're going to see some other things that jump out that will lead you to think about Jesus like substitute. Because there's going to be at some point here along the way a substitute. And that substitute is going to remind you of Jesus because they talk about it being a lamb. It's going to end up being a ram. But when I think about a lamb, I think about what John the Baptist says. Behold, the lamb of God who come to take away the sin of the world. It puts me in the mind of Jesus. I think this is preparation for what will come years later when Jesus will come and do this exact thing and take our place on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitution. It helps us to understand the love of God and how much he loves us. So he says in verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering means that not only uh, am I asking you to lay him on an altar and injure him, not only am I asking you, I'm asking you to create or to accomplish the ultimate sacrifice, a burnt offering, which means if it happens, he'll be totally destroyed. And the question is, why would God, we've already asked it, ask someone. You have to know, God always has a plan. Always has a plan. And all we have to do is trust his plan, even when we don't know what the plan is. Because Abraham at this point doesn't even know what the eventual outcome will be. He simply trusts God. Verse 3. Verse 3 says this. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. His response in verse 3 is similar to his response in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Chapter uh, verse four in particular, God says to him, do something that is uncomfortable for you. In verse four of chapter 12, he just does it here in verse three of this passage. God says, take your only son, the son you love and sacrifice him on a mountain. I'm going to show you where it is and look at what his response is. It seems crazy to me. I just wouldn't be able to do this. It says that he rises early. In the morning. Now, at the very least, I would have tried to delay this thing. I would have slept in that morning. Because I wouldn't have been able to sleep all night long. And I would have laid in bed as long as possible to see and prayed hard to see if there was another way, if there was another solution, if there was something else, if I was hearing it wrong. Questioning God. But Abraham doesn't do that. His response to chapter to verse 2 is a direct is in direct correlation to the fact that he's a worshiper. The transition between verse 2 and verse 3 supports the fact that we've already established that Abraham has a lifestyle of worship. He doesn't question, he rises early in the morning and sets out to do this. Interesting. Uh, as shocking as the instructions must have been to him, Abraham rises early 
in the morning and sets out to do it. Uh, interesting. Verse 4. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar off. There's significance. There's probably more significance to this third day idea than, I'm, than I have time to share this morning. But the significance that I'll share with you now is that this third day means that it was a three-day journey from Beersheba to Moriah. Can you imagine? As hard as this must have been in Abraham's mind and having to leave home, not, I don't know if he shared it with Sarah or not. I'm sure he probably didn't. Because if he had, he probably would have never made it out of the house. You're going to do what? To who? My child? Uh, no. <laughs> no, he wouldn't have made it out of the house. But he does. He makes it out of the house, uh, and he sets out on this journey that is about 50 to 60 miles from Beersheba to Moriah. And he sets out on this journey, a three-day journey, and he arrives in three days. Can you imagine the thoughts that were going through his mind as he's looking at his beloved son, thinking that when I arrive in three days, what I'm going to have to do? Three days, and through this, on this three-day journey, uh, it would seem like that he would have time to question God, but we don't see any of that. Uh, it would seem like he would do that uh, in verse 4, but he didn't. There's no hesitation. There's no doubt. There's no evidence of any of that. He just goes on this journey. Three days, and then verse 5. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with this donkey with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is the first time in scripture that we see this word. We see the, we see the practice. We see the lifestyle before. But this is the very first time we see this word worship. It's also the, the first thing that we first time we see Abram speak again since verse 1. He says here in verse 5, here am I. Second time we see him speak. After all that's happened in verses 2, 3, and 4, we don't see Abraham say anything. God's asked him to do this. He travels on this journey, all of that. He's silent. Then in verse 5, we, hear, we see him speak again. And he says, as we see him speak here in verse 5, uh, he speaks and um, he says in verse 5, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over and worship. Uh, there's a shocking reference, somewhat shocking reference to why would he choose this word? Why would he say that they're going to worship? Worship of all things. Why would he use this word? Well, let me share with you what the definition of worship is. Worship is expressing extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to something or someone. Uh, the word translated worship in verse 5 comes from a Hebrew word that means to bow down, to prostrate oneself before a deity. In the New Testament, Worship comes from a word that means to kiss the hand in a token of reverence. 
It's an image of absolute love and complete trust and devotion to whatever or whoever it is that you're worshiping. So then Abraham chooses this word because his plan is as crazy and strange as it seems to us to worship God in this way. This is an ex is going to be an expression of worship from him to a God that he so loves and so trusts and so rev reverences and honors. Uh, it's more, worship is more than an act that we do on Sunday. Worship is more than just the beginning of the time that we have together on Sunday morning. It's more than just the songs we sing. Worship is a lot more, and Abraham seems to get it. Not just here in verse 5, but if we look at the entirety of his life, he seems to understand what worship is all about. He seems to understand that it's more than that. And he, he, he understands that we must worship in good times. Because remember, at the end of chapter 21, it was good. Things were well. Isaac had just been born, and they were celebrating and worshiping, and he had built an altar and all of this. But then the transition to chapter 22, and this is difficult, and he's still worshiping. I think it says to us that we have to be prepared to worship in good times and in bad times. And there's a lot more to worship than just an act. And worship, as we say in our values, is more than just an act. It's a lifestyle. Now, uh, this is a different situation, and Abraham still is worshiping. It's interesting that he says this. What, what exactly is he thinking when he says uh, that we are going to go worship and that we are going to come again? What, what, what's his thought process? What, what does he mean by that? Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews gives us an idea as to what Abraham might have meant. So in Hebrews 11, 19, uh, it says that God, he, it says that he considered, Abraham considered that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead if he actually went through with this. He, was he thinking that? Was he thinking, as he said, that we're going to go and we're going to come again? Was he thinking that even if I go through with this, that God will be able to, I have so much faith in God and trust in him that even if I do this, I believe that God will raise him again. Or did he believe that God would provide a substitute, a lamb, to take his place? Every time that we see Abraham speak in this passage, it is an expression of worship. This is no different. Verse 7, he speaks for the third time. Verse 7, he says this. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, son. He speaks for the third time. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Uh, this is the first in this entire account. This is the first hint from anybody that something may be problematic. There's no pushback along the way from anyone until we get to verse 7. And then Isaac speaks up. Isaac had obviously been a part of worship before. And Isaac says, Daddy, <laughs> I see you have 
all these items that we normally use in worship. But we're missing something. We don't have a lamb. Right? He says, what, what, what's going on? The first hint of a problem, the first hint of pushback from anybody, because Isaac, to this point, has gone along with the program, but Isaac, on the way up the mountain, suddenly realizes we're missing something. And look at what Abraham says in response. His response again says to me that Abraham is a worshiper. Abraham trusts God. Abraham believes that God is going to somehow make a way. It also says to me that Abraham was praying in his heart that God would do something. Because watch what he says in verse 7. In response, in verse 8 rather, in response to what Isaac says in verse 7, this is what Abraham says. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He speaks, and his speech is an expression of worship because it says, Isaac, my son, I'm trusting God. It also says to me that prayer is important. I think it's a reference to a prayer that he was having on the inside. I believe I, uh, Abraham was probably praying, Lord, make a way. <laughs> make a way somehow. I don't know. So, so all of us have prayed this prayer, right? I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I have to say on the outside what I'm feeling on the inside, and on the inside, I'm believing that God will provide a lamb. That we won't have to. He doesn't say all of this. This is my uh, addition to this. He doesn't say this, but I believe he might have been thinking uh, that we're not going to have to go through with this. I said, God is going to provide a lamb. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I believe he will. It's important to be a person of prayer. Even if you don't utter those prayers out loud, it's important to be a person of prayer, to be praying on the inside what you want God to do on the outside. And so Abraham is praying and he responds to Isaac by saying, God will provide. Then in verse 9, Abraham built the altar as an expression of worship. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and there laid the wood in order and in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He builds an altar as an expression of worship. Then just as as we hurry, let me just kind of go a little quicker. Verse 10, then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's prepared to go through with this. And he actually starts the motion to slaughter and sacrifice his son. And then here is that all-important three-letter word that we find all throughout Scripture that changes the course of everything. But. Anybody ever had a but in their life that changed everything? I'm talking about B-U-T, not two T's. <laughs> One T, right? That changed everything in your life? But God intervened, but the angel of the Lord, it says, intervened and called unto him from heaven. Abraham calls him twice for emphasis and to note, to make sure that he hears him. Abraham, Abraham. And he speaks again and says, here am I as an expression of worship and submission. Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. But now 
that you, I know now that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He passes the test. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, there was the answer to his prayers. There is a ram, not a lamb, but a ram caught in the bush. And it's an answer to the prayer that Abraham prayed all the way up the mountain, all the way on the three-day journey. He's praying this prayer, and God answers his prayer as he looks, and there is a substitute caught in the bush, in the thicket, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Can you imagine the relief that Isaac felt? Can you imagine what Isaac might have been saying? He was probably saying some choice words. I don't know how exactly how old he was, but he was obviously old enough, to, you know, to have his own thoughts because he said, Daddy, where's the ram? So I can just imagine that he said some interesting stuff while his daddy was tying him up and binding him. Uh, and then when the ram appears, can you imagine the relief within Isaac? So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, as it is said on the mount of the Lord, shall be, it shall be provided. I want to close with talking about one of my favorite authors, a leadership guru, John C. Maxwell. John C. Maxwell writes a book entitled Running with the Giants. And in this book, he paints a picture based on Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. He paints this picture of a stadium that's filled with people. And as you know, in Hebrews 11, it's called the Hall of Faith because there's a list of all of these faithful saints who have gone before and have set the way because of their faith, they made it into the hall. And in chapter 12, it starts off by saying, now, therefore, seeing therefore that we're compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. And so Maxwell paints a picture of this stadium filled with people and in the stands are all these witnesses and on the track are, are all of us running a race. And Maxwell says, I imagine what it would look like if I were running a race and I were to be able to call down out of the stands one of these witnesses, one of these saints that have gone before and ask them if they would run just one lap with me and share some good things that they've learned in their life as we run this one lap. One of the people that Maxwell uh, pulls out of the stands is Abraham. He asked Abraham a question. Abraham shares something with him. But I want to ask Abraham a different question than Maxwell does. I, too, want to call Abraham down as we close today and ask him not to run just one lap, but to run the whole race with us. And as he runs the whole race with us, I want to ask Abraham, Abraham, what would you share with me about worship that you learned in all of your life and in particular in this incident that happened in Genesis chapter 22? What key points would you share with me if you were allowed to run the entire race and we had plenty of time for you to share with me what you learned? I think Abraham would say this. One of the things I think Abraham would say is that worship is essential to a healthy relationship with God. I think he would say that because I think he would look back on his life and he would realize that he had some ups and downs and he had some missteps and some mistakes, but he would look back and say that in all of that, I still worshiped God. And because of that, I lived out the promise. I did become the father of many nations. 
Those that bless me were blessed, and those that cursed me were cursed. And all of what God promised me came to pass because I had a relationship and worship with him. I think the next thing Abraham would share with me and us as we run is I think he would say what we've already said, that worship is a lifestyle and not just an act. And I think Abraham would encourage us to move beyond thinking about worship just being for 30 minutes. I think it would encourage all of us to, to move beyond thinking that worship is just for an hour on Sunday. I think it would encourage all of us to think that worship is something that we only do at church. I think Abraham would say, I worshiped everywhere I went. I worshiped when God called me. I worshiped all along. I worshiped when I got to Egypt. I worshiped on Mount Moriah. I worshiped everywhere I went. I built altars. I submitted and humbled myself before God. And all of my life, my life was a lifestyle of worship. And if I could give you any advice as we run this race, I would say to you to make your life a lifestyle of worship and don't just think of worship as an act. You know, I think the next thing I, Abraham would say is that worship often involves testing and seeks an appropriate response to the test. It's a hard thing to think about. What if God asked you to give up, not a person, but something that you held near and dear, something that you think you could never do without? What would you do? If God tested you in this way, what would your response be? I think Abraham would say, look at my life as an example. When I got called, I responded without question. When I was tested about sacrificing my son, I responded without question. Worship will test us if it's true worship. It, it, it's kind of an indicator if you're worshiping like you should, if you never face a test, all of us have had them, if you never face one, maybe there's no worship. But the key is how do we respond? And then lastly, here's what Abraham would say. One of the lessons, lessons that worship teaches is that God will always provide. He will always provide. I think he would remind us of some that came after him. I think he would say, remember what Paul says in Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I think it reminds us what David says in Psalm 37 and 25. I once was old, I once was young, but I'm now old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. I think he would remind us of how Jesus fed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. I think he would remind us of how Gideon defeated army of thousands with only 300. I think he would remind us of how Moses, as he led the people through the wilderness and they were hungry, God rained down manna from heaven. I think Abraham would remind us that when there was no water to drink, God gave them water from a rock. I think Abraham would remind us that God will always provide. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are.